So we continue our series today, Signs of Life, and tonight, today's sermon is titled, A Radiant Life. And a radiant life can, of course, refer to what we can have in God, living the life in the Spirit, the life kind of following Jesus. But in a more kind of significant way, it refers to a particular radiant life. That is the radiant life of Jesus the Christ. I'd like to start our day um, by looking at a passage of Scripture in 1 John, uh, chapter 1 actually. It says this, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have uh, looked at and touched with our hands concerning uh, the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and we do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, 1 John is an interesting little letter. In fact, it's hardly a letter. It's more like a treatise. Um, Sometimes I refer to uh, 1 John as like the cliff notes to the Gospel of John. Uh, Do you know cliff notes? Uh, Cliff Notes might not still be around because now we have the internet and, and Google will just kind of summarize everything for you. But, but children, before there was the internet <laughs> and we didn't necessarily read everything we were supposed to read, we would read these summarized versions of, of novels or of texts and they were called Cliff Notes. They kind of gave you the main characters. They talked about the summary. You were able to kind of get the gist of the story. Well, 1 John, minus the, the main parts of the narrative, like the, the characters and stuff, but if you boil the Gospel of John down to its central message, uh, what you end up with is 1 John. The, the writer says, um, this is what we've heard. This is what we've seen. This is what we looked at. This is what we touched. We're not talking about some abstract truth here. We're not talking about some idea or some concept. We saw this man. We knew him. He knew us. We watched him. We, we listened to him. We know the words that he said and the deeds that he did. We touched him. He touched us. And this is the truth. At another point in First John, uh, the author says, look, I have nothing new to say to you. Which is an interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, you, we come to church, we sing songs, uh, we give of our time and of our finances, and we have some kind of expectation that we'll learn something. 
something applicable, something that I can apply to my life. Certainly, I hope that's true. But I'm not trying to make up anything new here. I'm, I'm not trying to come up with some, some way that you haven't heard this before. As simply and as plainly as I can put it, here is the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth was chosen by God and is the Christ. He is the word that became flesh. In the beginning, there was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and he is Jesus. The truth is not an idea, not ultimately. The truth is a person. It's the person of Jesus who shines the light in the darkness. See, um, we imagine ourselves sometimes um, better than what we are. Sometimes I imagine myself looking thinner than what I do. And then I see a picture of myself. And I'm thinking, hmm, the camera really does add 10 pounds. Uh, last year, I was in the process of shooting some videos for a project at the college. And I, I was pretty pleased with it. Um, I had a really good editor, and they, they looked really nice. And so I decided to show them to Angela. And uh, she said, oh. I'm like, what? She says, well, you look kind of big. <laughs> I said, well, the camera adds 10 pounds. She said, how many cameras do they have on you? <laughs> it's a true story. None of that's made up. But sometimes we imagine ourselves kind of better than what we are. We imagine that we behave better than what we are because we judge ourselves on our own intentions, not necessarily on our actions. We judge ourselves on what we intend to say, not necessarily what we do say. And if somebody else kind of takes what we're, our actions or our, our words harshly, we try and say, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. As if to say, what I meant should matter most, and I shouldn't be held responsible for what I do and what I say, except that we should be, <laughs> Right? But there's the flip side to this. Sometimes we think of ourselves less than what we should, we should. We think that, oh, I can't do it. I can't make it. I'm not as good as so-and-so. I'm not the spouse I should be or the parent I should be or the employee I should be or the Christian I should be. And so our perceptions don't always kind of match reality. They kind of become a version of reality to ourselves, but it's not kind of who we truly are. And in 1 John, it says that God is light. Now that's a metaphor. It doesn't actually mean that God is light. Because, <laughs> you know, light comes and light is light. So, uh, but God is not light. Not literally. But metaphorically, God is. So what does the metaphor mean that God is light? Well, part of what it means is this. Is that because God is we can see and we can know what truly is. We can know the world as it truly is, and we can know ourselves as we truly are, but only as we step into the light. That is, as we get closer to God, we'll find ourselves having a truer picture of who we are. We'll see ourselves as the ones who are created in God's image, 
who are loved by God, who are cherished by God, who are called by God. And sometimes that's hard to see in the kind of darkness that we sometimes find ourselves. So how do we move from the darkness into the light? Well, one of the ways that we move from the darkness into the light is through our confession of sin. So sin, in some ways, is just darkness. It's, it's moving in the dark. And of course, when you're in the dark, it's hard to tell who you really are or what you really look like. But as you kind of step out of the darkness and into the light, as we get closer to God, we get this clearer picture of who we are. There's one point in one of his epistles, Paul says that he is the chief of all sinners. So, I mean, what, is, what does he mean by that? I mean, here he is. He's a church leader. He's an apostle. He's planting churches. We're all reading his letters, you know, um, because we take them to be the inspired word of God. So what does Paul mean that he's the worst of all sinners? I mean, part of me, you know, depend, depending on how I read that, I'm like, Paul's full of it. You know, what, what's he doing? But then, giving Paul the benefit of the doubt, I try and think, well, what is he experiencing? And I think as Paul had been in the darkness, as he stepped into the light, he saw himself more clearly than he had before. And he realizes the kind of depth of his brokenness. And in that, he's like, wow, look, I'm the worst one. I think, I think he... He probably did feel that way, but he felt that way, not because he was actually worse than the rest of us, but that he had this kind of moment of self-revelation of who he really is, kind of without Christ. And in that, right, he can have this confession. So it says in 1 John again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, uh, Christians, and especially evangelicals, have kind of reduced the gospel to a version of sin management. Um, In Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, I think it's the second chapter, it's called The Gospel of Sin Management. And it's this great critique about what we think sin is. Sin is actually not a big deal for God. Because God's already gone through a lot to alleviate its effects. I mean, if Jesus comes and lives a life and becomes a human being, if the divine word becomes human, that's a big sacrifice. And then as a baby, grows up and lives, becomes a rabbi, prophesies, teaches, heals, does miracles is identified by his followers as the Messiah. He says, yeah, that's me. You got me. Proclaims the gospel, the good news. Is killed by the Romans. The Jews, of course, wanted to kill him. They kind of tricked the Romans into doing it. God doesn't take their actions of the death of Jesus as the final word, but resurrects him and says, this This is what life will be. I give life where you give death. You've done your worst. I do my best. My best beats your worst. This is good news. And this this kind of uh, life, this kind of light, this kind of freedom, in a way then kind of alleviates the, 
uh, the most serious parts of sin. God's, God's not kind of, uh, kind of anxious, wringing his hands, thinking, mm, I don't know, hope they confess. He's kind of gone through all this to kind of deal with sin. At one point in his letter to, to Corinthians, it's the second letter to the Corinthians, canonically speaking, Paul writes that we have been given this uh, ministry of reconciliation, that Jesus reconciles us to God. And reconciles us to one another. At one point there, it says, God is no longer holding people's sins against them, but has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That's kind of big news. God is no longer holding people's sins against them. I thought that was God's job. I mean, I, I, read, I read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you know, the spider on the web dangling over the fire. <laughs> You should be scared. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be scared of God. Not in the sense of terror, anyway. There is this kind of biblical, again, metaphor, the fear of the Lord, but it has, it has more to do with kind of respect than it does terror. And, and God has already done all of this work and is doing all of this work to kind of alleviate sin. God wants us to confess our sins because he wants us to move from darkness into light. He wants us to be set free. He wants us to live in the life that he has provided for us. And sometimes instead of living in that life, we choose to kind of mull around in this old life. But that's not what God wants. God's already paid a big price to give us something different. And he's given us, not only has he provided all of this salvation and all of this glory for us, but he's done so by, by living this radiant life in Jesus Christ. So the radiant life of Jesus Christ is both the agency by which we can have life and the example of the radiant life that we can have. So he's both the kind of means and the goal. And we, we have that there. There's this other passage. It's from uh, Psalm 119. It says this. Um, psalm 119, it's, it's a beautiful psalm. Uh, it has uh, 22 stanzas, I believe. Uh, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in the first stanza, all of the um, words start with Aleph. In the second stanza, they all start with Beit. In the third stanza, they all start with Gimel. So it's like alphabetical order. So imagine writing a, a 20, if we're doing it in English, a 26 uh, stanza poem. And each stanza, the first word of each stanza starts with A, B, C, and on, on forward. Pretty neat. Kind of gets lost in translation. But it's beautiful. And a lot of it has to do with the word of the Lord. And this is an often quoted passage. This is from verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is, this radiant life is lived because we live in the light. And the light that we live in is the word of the Lord. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, it begs the question, well, what is the word of the Lord? And I'll say this, the word of the Lord certainly includes Scripture, but it's not reducible to it. That is, all of Scripture 
is the word of the Lord, but not all the word of the Lord has been inscripturated. That is, God has said all that scripture is, but God has said more than what scripture is. Uh, We see this in the very life of Jesus. Jesus is the word. I mean, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't say, and the word became a text and got written down so we could argue about it. And which translations we prefer. And how we interpret this passage or that passage. Right? Ultimately, it is Jesus who is the truth. What else does God have to say that has not been inscripturated? Well, in the Gospel of John... Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus did many other signs that are not written down. Because if we wrote them all down, it would take up all the books in all the world. But what has been written down has been written down so that you may believe and that in believing you may receive eternal life. So just to be clear again, all that got written down, Scripture, is the Word of God. All of it. It's all the Word of God. It's all inspired, it's all true, it's all trustworthy. But God has said other things. Sometimes the Lord showed up and it says, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet. And and they experienced God. It's interesting, um, the Hebrew word for word, or one of them anyway, can also mean uh, kind of experience or things. That I want you to remember the words that you saw, the words that you experienced, the, the message of God. I mean, have you ever, and this, this happens in a variety of ways. Of course, it happens through reading Scripture. But even in reading Scripture, have you ever read a Scripture that you've read, I don't know, countless times before, and now all of a sudden it's become alive in new ways? It's like jumping off the page, and it's like burning in your heart, and it's like making a difference in your life. God, that's God that's doing that. But it comes in other ways. Sometimes it might come in a sermon. Sometimes it might come in a word from a friend or a confidant. Sometimes it might come in a dream. We, friends, are the people of God. And and we are following a living God. A God who still lives and who still speaks if we have ears to hear. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this, is that when you read Scripture, you shouldn't just be reading thinking, what does this mean? You should be reading asking, what are you saying to me, God? Or how does this affect me? Or or, what am I to do? And you should also be paying attention to that still small voice in your prayers that that God can guide you and direct you existentially in your life. And you should pay attention to your dreams. Now, I, I don't know if you're a person who remembers your dreams very often or not. Maybe so, maybe not. But just be aware of this. In Scripture, we are told that sometimes God communicates through dreams, and I've experienced it, and I know others have too, and I just think you should be attentive to that. That God can speak to you in aisle six of Publix. God can speak to you 
uh, at your job. God can speak to you when you're asleep. There is no time that the light cannot shine in our lives. And we should be attentive to that. There's another passage I, I wanted to kind of raise our attention. This comes from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus calls us to be light, a city on a hill. Uh, first in the NRSV, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill it cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I also like the way that Eugene Peterson translates this. Same passage, different translation. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on the light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. This is, a, this is an important way to kind of understand this meta-narrative that's going on uh, through Scripture, right? So we, we have a couple of big concept ideas. Uh, one of them is kind of monotheism, that there is only one God, and that one God created and is responsible, right, for, the, for us and for this. And the other is this idea of election, that God has kind of chosen some for this particular purpose, now, when we talk about election, particularly in Scripture, it's most often referred to a particular group of people, and that is the Jews, right? The descendants of Abraham. And somehow the spiritual descendants of Abraham, because Abraham had some descendants who weren't part of the elect, right? So Ishmael didn't seem to get counted. Esau doesn't get counted. But we had this line of this particular group. Now, the question is, why would God choose a group? Is it, is it God choosing a group because he's going to save them, because he loves them, and he's going to damn the rest of us because, you know, we're not as good as them, or, you know, we're not his favorites? Or is God having a group because he intends to use the group, in a way, to use the group as a light, a flashlight, or a beacon, a lighthouse, to kind of show the rest of the world, this is who God is. It seems to me that, that Scripture fairly clearly says it's the latter. That to be chosen by God is for the purpose of being used by God. And used by God normally in the, in the process of creating light so that others can see and can also come in. So that group then, of course, gets expanded in the life and ministry of Jesus. So that it's not just those who are the descendants of Abraham by birth, but it's those who, like Abraham, are justified by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. So that now, as we have faith in Jesus Christ, as we confess that he is Lord, as we confess our sins, we're now part of that elect. 
we are part of the light. And as being part of the light, we are to shine. And so as, as Jesus is teaching on the shores of Galilee, and he says, you're to be a city on a hill, I mean, that could be a vague metaphor. Or it could refer to the same city on a hill that Scripture speaks of almost endlessly, which is Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem was to be a city on a hill. It was to be a light in the world for people to see who God really is. They had not done the best job at that, we'll say. They'd become a bit of an exclusive club. You know, us four and no more. And Jesus is challenging them. And he's saying now to this group of just regular folk, uh, carpenters and fishermen and farmers and seamstresses and other folks just kind of living around in Galilee, you are a city on a hill. You are light. I put you on the stand. I want you to shine. When you live your life and you live it in such a way that you radiate the light of Christ, then you are being a light that can um, enlighten your friends and family, your, your co-workers and your neighbors. I mean, how you live, how you respond really matters. I mean, if, I don't know, your, your food gets burnt at the restaurant today, uh, how do you treat that server or the cook or the manager? If, if things don't go well for you um, in a business deal, if uh, somebody backs into your car in the parking lot, there are ways to kind of respond to that that are radiant. And there are ways to respond to that that aren't so radiant. And the question is, who are we? Or maybe better yet, whose are we? If we think of ourselves as the people of God, and we follow the one who is the radiant life, then we should have this expectation that we too live this radiant life. This is the good news. This is the coming of God in the kingdom. Not just to kind of manage our sins so that we sin a little less. Look, if Jesus died on a cross just so you sinned a little less, that's too much to pay. I have too big a price to pay so you can tell what? Three or four less lies in a week. No, this is supposed to be transformative, right? A life that's lived. I want us to kind of go back to Second uh, John for a minute. I mean, First John for a minute. I'm now in chapter 2. Um, or uh, 7 through 11, actually. It says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother or sister is still in darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light. And in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness 
walks in the darkness and does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on blindness. There's nothing new here. As I said, this is the gospel, plain and simple. I don't always live the way I would like to live. I find myself sometimes making decisions that in retrospect I wish I hadn't have made. I lose my temper with the girls. I get impatient. I have this kind of expectation the way things will go and they don't go that way. And so I have to ask myself, what's all this about? What's well, not about me or us kind of being sinners in the hands of an angry God. Though I think we are in the hands of God. I just think we're in the hands of a loving God who loves us, who has forgiven us, and who has provided for us this radiant life. A life full of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and joy is a more abundant life. A life that Jesus came to give us. When he said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly, he didn't just mean life with more stuff. He meant life that was full. Life that was joyful and graceful and merciful and faithful. We serve a living God. And that God is light.